Hello and welcome to Mental Awakening, the podcast that explores all topics related to trauma recovery, mental health, chronic pain and healing. I'm your host, Sarah DeKeely, psychotherapist and mental health social worker. And today I'm going to talk about chronic pain and TMS. I'll discuss what TMS is and offer listeners an insight into better understanding the chronic conditions and the incredible wisdom of our body. Hi everybody, welcome back. So like I said, I'm going to be talking about TMS and chronic pain um, for a bit with you guys. For those of you who don't know what TMS is, it stands for Tension Myositis or Myoneural Syndrome. It was first discovered by a guy called Dr. John Sarno. So if you haven't read his books, if you're not familiar with him, I highly recommend that you read at least one book by him and that you look him up. Um, because, you know, for a lot of people in today's world, um, chronic pain is becoming quite a big issue. And it's not just chronic pain. We're talking about everything from fibromyalgia, um, tension headaches, you know, um, back pain, neck pain, knee pain, um, chronic abdominal and pelvic pain syndromes, you know, um, even things like um, repetitive strain injury or um, ringing in the ear, vertigo, dizziness, chronic coughing or difficulty, sometimes breathing, anxiety, um, depression, um, which are, you know, also considered to be TMS-related, acid reflux-related issues, um, stomach issues, insomnia, any kind of hypersensitivity to touch, to sound, to smell, just a whole bunch of different things that I haven't even mentioned here. The majority of the people that I see, the clients that I have, experience chronic pain, um, and they all have completed numerous tests, medical appointments, often for several years visiting the doctor, taking medication, um, and perhaps also getting cleared for certain conditions and undergone even surgery, surgical procedures. Yet nothing's really changed. Their symptoms continue to remain the same or have moved around to other parts of their body. And I'm here to say that that is not coincidental. It's not a coincidence. TMS, which um, is also known as a psychophysiologic disorder, PPD, is basically a mind-body-related disorder. So if you have had several x-rays or even one x-ray MRIs, if you've had tests done, um, all kinds of different things, and the doctors haven't found out what you actually have, or if you've been put in one of these categories of health conditions, such as fibromyalgia, because there just isn't a, a reasonable explanation as to why it developed, then you're more than likely, it's more than likely that you have TMS. So one way to get tested for TMS is obviously to see a TMS um, therapist or someone who is actually trained or, you know, quite conscious and aware of what this, what this actually means. But another way, you know, besides obviously getting better informed, which is absolutely crucial, Another way to find out whether this resonates for you is to look into the personality trait that you have. So if you're exhibiting any kind of perfectionistic personality traits where you feel like you have to prove your sense of self-worth or very self-critical and often 
and have a need to maintain high standards for yourself, that inner sense of inadequacy, you know, that's fueled by the perfectionism and need to be good, you know, to the point where you sacrifice your needs for other people, you know, where you end up tiptoeing around other people, including someone like your partner, for example. Difficulty saying no, um, hostility and aggression or irritability, you know, towards other people that you end up controlling or holding in or end up projecting in an aggressive way. Guilt or self-criticism for not being or doing enough to please and satisfy other people. Dependency and a deep inner desire to be taken care of by other people. Um, which often generates uh, as unconscious fear and anger, you know, just fretting about little things, um, not really knowing when enough is enough, um, avoiding conflict at all costs, avoiding to feel your emotions, uh, even things like uh, drinking excessively or doing anything excessively as a way to numb an emotion, as a way to escape, um, sometimes crying for no apparent reason, snapping at people for insignificant things, wanting a sense of control in every situation, worrying excessively about everything, difficulty implementing healthy boundaries, which is a massive one. This is one of the biggest one that I um, talk to my clients about and work on. Often um, accomplished individuals who end up working in the helping um, profession, such as myself, I know for me, TMS, you know, was something that I lived with for over 20 years. It was just such an incredible big part of my life. Um, I had everything you can imagine TMS related from IBS related issues since I was a little baby. Um, so that would make it over 30 years because um, I'm now in my 40s. And um, I also had back pain. In my early 30s, I like really bad back pain. I went through a severe eating disorder, which during my 20s and teenage years, which is also considered to be TMS, just acid reflux related issues, TMJ, ringing in the ear, jaw pain, uh, pelvic pain, you name it. I've had it, neck pain, um, headaches, hip pain, just the list is endless. So I know a lot about how it feels to live with pain. And I know that every time there's a major stress in our lives or there's some level of change, that that's what ends up triggering it. Or we've, when we feel that we don't have control over a specific situation, you know. And it does move around in your body. Um, you can have back pain and then all of a sudden that's, that gets better and then you start experiencing something different. So there's usually a deep-seated feeling of inferiority stemming from that low self-esteem belief that nothing you do is ever good enough or ever enough. I've certainly worked a lot on letting go of my perfectionistic tendencies, hence why whenever I do anything in my work, I, I don't focus on perfection at all, whether it's recording this podcast or writing case notes. Like for me, perfectionism is incredibly disempowering and debilitating. I don't believe it to be um, empowering whatsoever. I actually think that it diminishes my power and it actually diminishes my ability to support people from that place of, you know, alignment or strength, confidence. 
place of authenticity and truth. So usually when we have this competitive and determination, you know, determined mind to get ahead and are critical of ourselves and other people, these are often signs that there's something going on below the surface. TMS and PPD-related pain um, often occurs during a particularly stressful time. Like I said, for example, when you're moving in with someone, moving out, um, starting a new job, losing a job, financial hardship, having a baby, going through a breakup, any kind of loss, including physical injury, you know, where you feel like you've had to give up some of the things that you love to do, can trigger this stuff for us. But besides that, there's also the trauma, the unprocessed trauma that can contribute towards a lot of suppression of various related issues. In fact, I, I personally believe that to heal TMS, you also have to heal your trauma. I truly believe that because it's very connected. Always see a doctor first, you know, it's just what we have to do to rule out any, you know, physical causes that can be quite serious, like cancer, infections, or broken bones. But then the majority of other things after that are more often than not TMS related. Dr. Howard Schubiner always should suggest, um, and he's a pioneer in this field, he suggests that we need to explore some of the following questions to determine if our symptom is TMS related or not. The first question is, is there a clearly defined medical disorder? Like, is there a structural damage? Is there tissue damage that explains the symptom? The second question is, is there a history of other psychophysiological disorders? So for me, developing an eating disorder um, at a young age, I realized many years later that my mom had an eating disorder and I actually witnessed her purging in our bathroom floor, I had this really suppressed memory that um, I, you know, that I remembered many years later of her purging out food, and that was her way of coping with stress. And I'm pretty sure that at that point in my life, I would have taken that modeling behavior on, and I would have been, you know, I, I would have it would have been stored somewhere in my memory that that's how I can handle my stress, that's how I can cope with stress, that's how I can control or feel a sense of control. Because I truly believe that that's what happens. Children are like sponges. They take on everything that they witness, everything that they hear. And, you know, otherwise, why would I even have such a clear image of that particular memory, right? Um, also, the third question is, were there significant life events occurring at the onset of the symptom? or the symptoms? What was happening in your life when the pain started to come on? Is there a history? So this is the fourth question. Is there a history of significant stressful events, particularly early in life? And that's the trauma I'm referring to, right? Um, trauma often contributes towards this chronic state of stress, um, you know, having a nervous system that is constantly stuck in a state of fight, flight, and freeze. So if you're considering um, starting TMS treatment with an experienced TMS therapist, um, psychotherapist, or counselor, I mean, there are so many coaches out there that call themselves TMS coaches. So just be mindful, be aware of who you're working with, and also know that it will take a bit of time and effort. 
Don't get discouraged if you're not seeing results straight away. The most important thing is that recovery is absolutely possible. It's all about self-realization, self-discovery, insight into the self, which is why therapy can be really helpful in this process. It's also important to routinely practice techniques that will help you with the recovery um, process, such as, you know, breathing exercises, physical exercise, meditating or grounding and learning self-soothing techniques. And I know I keep saying absolutely important, like they are all important. And yes, they are. But the one that's absolutely, absolutely, like really (laughs) important more than anything else is implementing healthier boundaries. Learning about your boundaries is absolutely crucial when it comes to TMS. Because if you don't know how to say no, if you don't know how to stop, how to tune in to your physical needs, emotional needs, and including spiritual needs, then you're not gonna recover from this. It's, it's, it's just simply not possible. The whole journey is about self-love, It's about learning to self-care. It's about self-compassion. It's about understanding that a lot of the patterns that you have had in your life that you've implemented um, are just no longer serving you, you know? I truly believe that TMS is our body's expression of an unconscious process from conflict. So it's not because of a diet. It's not because of all kinds of other things that we might think. Yes, a lot of different things can have an impact, especially when there's been unresolved trauma and when the body gets conditioned. And so, yes, um, some people are incredibly sensitive to certain foods. I know I am. Certain foods just, you know, are harder, have become harder for my body to tolerate. But it's not about the food. It's about the unresolved and the underlying emotion or condition or pattern of thinking and behaving. It's about the perception we have of ourselves. Um, So having a therapist can really help you in that, can really support you in getting getting to the bottom of it. What's unprocessed within me? Um, Other things that people do when they go through TMS, that typical personality, TMS personality trait, is that need to fantasize, exaggerate, believing that, you know, you need to have surgery to heal chronic pain, otherwise it's not going to happen. Sometimes I, I see people with body dysmorphic disorders or just that body dysmorphia rejection of their body including themselves and that desire for cosmetic surgery uh, or or that chronic craving for overstimulation such as whatever it could be working too much smoking drinking uh, video games sex drugs all kinds of stuff to watching too much tv eating too much right the denial that emotions cause pain and illness That's usually um, what makes it worse. If you can get to a place where you can truly accept and learn through the information that you expose yourself to, starting with Dr. Sano, that emotions cause pain. Emotions that haven't been processed, that have been suppressed or being projected can cause illness. I just want to acknowledge that all pain is real. There's no such thing as imaginary pain. 
we can definitely alter the nerve pathways in the brain. So long-term pain is not just caused by tissue damage or abnormal structures, it's actually a result from altered nerve pathways in the brain. And a nerve pathway consists of a network that enables action by the body. So a network in the brain that enables action by the body. Um, examples of nerve pathway actions are, uh, for example, learning to ride a bike, you know, walking, chewing, singing. These are just some, you know, examples of that. Uh, pain and associated symptoms like anxiety, depression, fatigue, insomnia, all of those things can also be caused by nerve pathways, which means that we can alter them, we can change them. Um, if, it, if, there's a, um, if we perceive danger, then nerves are activated to produce a physical response, which serves to protect us from further danger. And this physical response could come in the form of muscle tension or some kind of, you know, elevated heart rate or some kind of contraction, inflammation, anxiety, pain, or all kinds of other symptoms. Um, this activation of an acute pain nerve pathway will be remembered by the brain. And then what happens is that it can later be reactivated by all kinds of different triggers. And this is how the brain learns to keep us safe and teaches us to seek safety. So emotional stress can play a big role in worsening the pain, the physical pain, because the brain responds to emotional injury the same way that it responds to physical injury. So for example, um, every time we feel frightened or scared or worried or anxious or frustrated, there's an activation of the danger signals in the brain. A common source of suppressed emotion is adverse childhood experiences, ACE. Um, and so um, this is why, I, again, I believe that trauma recovery and trauma processing trauma is fundamental. Um, but pretty much what it comes down to is that chronic pain is caused by perceived danger in the brain. So when the danger signal is turned off, then the pain will decrease and often resolve completely. That's why I always say to my clients, don't fear the pain. Don't fear the pain. You're actually safe. Keep telling yourself that. Focus on the emotion. And I'm going to repeat that a few times throughout this talk. Usually when we have this, um, when, when there's a need to criticize and judge other people, projecting our shadows onto other people, Constantly complaining about pain, yeah, and noticing that the pain is moving around or it can also sometimes get stuck in one place, like with um, acid refluxes and stomach-related issues. And often all of this stuff, the TMS-related issues, chronic pain, like I said, comes back to the trauma you've experienced. And usually the trauma that we experience contributes towards the suppression of anger. So we, even we either suppress it and pretend to be these incredibly calm, in control, smiley, happy people to the outside world, or we end up projecting it in a passive-aggressive way, yeah? So you, it's really about understanding and acknowledging and accepting that herniated discs don't cause back pain or neck pain. Shoulders and knees 
rarely need surgical interventions for pain relief. A lot of the people that I see for chronic pain, fibromyalgia, including other related mental health-related issues, sometimes they just seem to be very polite, responsible, controlled, very cool in how they act. Beneath all of that is anger, a lot of anger, suppressed rage, in fact, which Dr. Sano talked about, and I personally also agree with this from my own experience and from the people that I've worked with. I mean, the traumas that we go through in life, they don't just, you know, get brushed aside like we think they do by the rational mind. They remain in our system. They remain in our bodies. They remain in our unconscious. And so anger that is suppressed or projected is never healthy. Anger that is recognized and felt is healthy, is what we actually need to do. It's not part of the personal shadow. That's when anger doesn't contribute towards pain because then it becomes conscious. One of the epiphanies that led me to my own healing was the understanding that I was absolutely furious inside. I was raging, but I never felt it. I kept thinking, you know what, um, I'm not an angry person, I'm a calm person, I don't like getting angry, it doesn't, it doesn't resonate with me that there's suppressed rage within me. I was a people pleaser, right? So of course I didn't resonate with the anger. There was a big part of me that was completely in denial, and the way that I would feel my anger and the rage was through these symptoms, through all of these symptoms, including anxiety, including panic attacks. I even remember how I used to reject family members because of their ability to express their anger. I used to reject them. I used to just look at them as, oh, I can't stand you. I can't even stand listening to you. I remember when I met my husband, same thing. He was very good at verbalizing his anger. Obviously, he, he was more of a projector than, you know, at the time than actually being able to feel his anger and, or, or communicate it in a healthy way. But I would look at him and I would be like, I can't wait to run away from you. Like, you are so, you know, you are so unattractive to me. And there's no way that I want to be near you. And it wasn't until I started to embrace my own anger that I was able to hold space for other people's anger. I was able to stand there and know that it had nothing to do with me and know that I have the capacity to implement healthy boundaries, to look after myself, to not need the other person to be calm in order for me to feel better, not need to save them, not need to please them. There's no need for me to rescue them. And so embracing our anger, understanding our anger, looking at that suppressed rage is absolutely crucial when it comes to healing from chronic pain. And it's important to bear in mind that anger is also frustration. There's a lot of other emotions that are in the same category as anger, such as being upset, being irritated, being controlling, being envious, being stubborn, you know, being offensive, aggressive, loud. Anything from being infuriated, being um, impatient, being snappy and critical, and sometimes even being sarcastic. These are all signs of anger, particularly suppressed anger. 
You know, when you have pain screaming down your leg or your back or your neck or your head or you have anxiety attacks, these are all signs that something is not being heard. Something is not being felt. Often, you know, for me as a child, I grew up in a in a home that was somewhat religious. I mean, there was it was more like our home wasn't religious, but the culture that I was born into was very religious. And I was forced into certain rituals and certain ways of thinking and understanding in life that um, made me feel guilty uh, and made me feel like I was a sinner for even contemplating pleasure, for even contemplating enjoyment. I felt flawed from pretty much the moment I can remember. I mean, if I think about it, a whole world had already lived in me even before I was born. A whole world of expectations, of legacy, of sorrow, of pain, of, you know, that I was born into. Nevertheless, the, the, the stuff that came after that. I think I've mentioned this um, in my book. At the age of five, I would go to my mom and I would say, have I been a good girl? Are you pleased with me? That's how much fear and shame I already felt by that age. I used to vomit as a child, just randomly for no apparent reason. Well, so it appeared. Um, I had trouble with bowel movements and, you know, experienced constipation to the point where I would scream. And I can now see and understand that a lot of that was because I felt so unsafe. I felt so unloved. There was a separation between my authentic self, so that I am-ness, which we are born with. If you look at a baby, that confidence, that sense of just that aliveness, that excitement, that curiosity. I was very quickly separated away from that, separated away from my authentic self because I had to be something other for my parents, for my family, for my culture, for my you know, even my relatives, I had to be a certain way to be acceptable, to be loved. So that cultural shame, that environmental shame, you know, became a big part of my sense of self, a big part of how I perceived myself from a very young age. I pretty much became the emotional parent of my mother and the parent of my younger sibling. So there's a lot of these influences that we are not aware of that contribute towards that development of self that is actually faulty. And I've talked about this several times because I think it's so, so important. You know, so what are the conditions necessary for the development of self, for the development of even self-regulation, self-esteem for a man, for a woman, for a grown-up? I would have wanted to do a separate episode on this one, but I just want to briefly mention compassionate curiosity. Compassionate curiosity is really important. Dr. Gabor Mate, who's a trauma expert and one of my teachers, I consider him to be one of my teachers, and I have great respect for the work that he's done in this field. talks a lot about that. So ideally, we would have loved to have compassionate curiosity take place by our parents, you know? loving in such a wise and powerful way that they can extend themselves in an effort to understand their child, understand why they do what they do, 
you know, the right words, the right actions. But this doesn't often happen. It hasn't happened for many of us. And so we need to begin the process of cultivating that ourselves. Understanding ourselves, unconditionally loving ourselves, because that's what will go a long way towards binding the wounds inflicted by past misjudgments, by past blockages, emotional pains, and so on. Developing a new view towards yourself. And this is not an easy thing. You know, it can take a lifetime to do this. I'm still doing it. I'm still working on it. It's not a matter of just thinking positively and throwing out a whole bunch of positive affirmations. That's obviously wonderful. And I think it's a, you know, it's something that we do need to do to re re rewire and retrain our mind to think in ways that we haven't necessarily allowed ourselves to think previously. But before we can do that, we have to learn to accept the self and to courageously look at ourselves, honestly look at ourselves, you know, learning the skills of self-understanding. Um, notice that each time you make a critical judgmental comment about yourself, notice that whenever, you know, you're seized by anxiety, um, that often it's because of an unresolved emotion or a suppressed emotion. Understanding, looking into what's being acted out, what's happening without judgment, you know, What's contributing to this feeling? Sometimes clients say to me, well, you know what? I've had 10 sessions and I see no improvements. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know if I can do this. I don't know what else I can do. And I always say to them, you know, can we accept that it's taken you at least two, three, four decades to get to where you are now and that it will probably take at least a fraction of that time to turn things around? So letting go of that sense of urgency, learning about tolerating these feelings of anxiety, these feelings of guilt. And this is what self-acceptance is, you know? It's not like a, a concept that we just throw out there where we're meant to be all the time feeling happy with ourselves. Self-acceptance is that we experience ourselves on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. You can feel anxious, one moment, you can feel happy. Another one, you can feel guilty. You can feel needy. It's not about not having these feelings, but it's about being unconditional about them, looking at understanding them. That's self-inquiry. It doesn't mean self-admiration. It doesn't mean self-abandonment, right? It means self-curiosity. So not punishing ourselves. I mean, if you want to go towards the direction of healing, which I'm guessing you do, or you wouldn't have been, you know, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast right now. You don't chastise yourself for whatever's happening, for whatever's coming along the road, but rather you inquire with curiosity. And that's why having a guide is important, you know, choosing a guide like a psychotherapist or a counselor to help you become a mature individual to become a self-respecting person in your own right. So the goal is not to be cured, but to develop. And yes, recovery is possible. Recovery from illness, recovery from mental health, all of the issues, recovery from chronic pain is absolutely possible. I've, I've, I've done it myself. I've seen many people go through that. But there are times when certain conditions 
continue to remain and we have to be with them. We have to make space for them. There could be karmic reasons behind that. There could be all kinds of reasons that I have no idea about, right? You have no idea about. But when we fight ourselves, when we fight what's coming up, we remain stuck in that victim consciousness that I talked about in previous episodes. And we also remain stuck in feeling incredibly angry and resentful, you know, even angry towards our body, noticing, you know, even I always say, notice the ways that you withhold approval from your body. What does your internal dialogue sound like? Because if it sounds anything like this, you're, you're lazy, you're out of shape, you're broken, you're not good for anything, you're you're a villain, you're not good enough, you're sloppy, you're weak, you're pathetic, you're useless, you're a disappointment, you know, you're a procrastinator, you're fat, you know, you're not good for anything, you look like your mother, you look like your father, you don't deserve what you have, whatever it could be, then that's, that's your sign right there that something's off. And that's what the body is going to receive. Those are the most messages that the body is going to receive. Our internal dialogue, our internal perception of ourselves is exactly what will be reflected in our bodies. I always say when there is an imbalance in your energy, and what is your energy? Your energy is, is exactly how you see yourself, is your power. It's how you feel about yourself. It's how, you, how much you believe in yourself. It's the ability to be authentically and fully yourself without all that weight, without all the stuff that you're suppressing or projecting. That's your energy, right? That's a strong, powerful energy. When that's imbalanced, when that's weak, then there's naturally going to be an imbalance in your physiology. I introduced Caroline Miss in a previous episode about the survival archetypes, and I love what she has to say about power, personal power. Because if your energy is weak, there's no way you can tap into your personal power. You'll be completely disconnected from it. And that's how you, you know, you're deprived of your life force. That's how you're deprived of that energy that in turn leads to physiological power, physiological alignment, alignment between your body and your energy and your mind. So this is the triangle, yeah, mind, body, spirit. And what is spirit? Spirit is that energy that is beyond the physical. How do you feel when your body doesn't look, feel, or perform as you believe it should? You know, pay attention to that inner criticism. As the owner of your body, how do you relate to it? What do you say to it? What are the messages that you're giving it? Because often when we're dealing with chronic pain and TMS, the messages are, this shouldn't be happening to me. My body should be healthy always. I hate this. I don't want this. I'm breaking apart. This, that's the language. And, and this is about understanding that as long as your body is communicating to you, it's actually working well. And that's exactly what's happening when we experience TMS. Our body is communicating to us. Um, so withholding approval is not a good thing. Withholding approval from ourselves, from our body, feels like control, as if Depriving your body out of love and acceptance will cause you to shape up. And that's not the case. It doesn't work that way. When we deprive any parts of ourselves of love, we just feel worse. 
sometimes there is a fear that what if I accept my body as it is? Is it just going to stay, you know, is it just going to stay like this? Is it never going to change? You know, that's not the truth at all. So I encourage you today to bring your attention to the ways in which you withhold approval from your body as often as you can. What happens when you look in the mirror? What happens when you, you know, feel pain? What happens when um, you just, you know, you put your clothes on or you take your clothes off? What happens when you think about aging? Ask yourself, am I giving myself permission to move my body, to enjoy my body, to experience joy, to experience pleasure. It's not about just staying stagnant and focusing on the pain, doing nothing, avoiding exercise, not at all. This is not a structural issue, this is an emotional issue. And it's so important that you remember that you are safe. You are safe. Tell yourself that, I am safe. I can move my body, it's okay. Obviously, you don't need to go to the gym and crush it. You can just take it easy by starting with something slow and gentle, but still making sure that you're moving your body, that you don't just stop yourself from doing the things that you love and enjoy doing. The pain is just pain. Keep telling yourself it's just pain. It's not about the physical pain. It's about the emotional pain, and that's what we want to focus on. Notice the disapproval. Feel into it. How do you experience it? Can you invite the feeling to be there? Can you breathe into it? Can you let it go? And so when it comes to working with the anger, besides obviously journaling, talking to a therapist or someone, besides um, self-inquiry of any shape or form, I always say, and I always implement this as much as I can myself, Feel the emotion in your body. Feel it and then let it go. It's a bit like children. You look at children, you look at animals. When they're angry, they feel it. They let you know that, hey, a boundary is being crossed here or something's happening and I don't like it. So they might just, you know, feel it by just all of a sudden having a yell or going, ugh. And that's a release of emotion. And the next minute it's over. Sometimes, yes, children even get caught up in that feeling. Um, you know, adults do quite a bit. We, we can hold grudges and hold on to certain emotions for a long period of time, but that doesn't serve us. So the key to processing anger is to feel it in your body and then to release it. It might come back an hour later. It might come back five minutes later. It might come back tomorrow. It might not come back for a week, but it's okay. You know, anger is just another feeling, just like sadness, happiness, joy. We're not meant to dis diminish it. We're not meant to suppress it. We're meant to feel and release, catch and release. I love that song. There's a song called Catch and Release. It's absolutely beautiful. Look it up. Maybe listen to it on YouTube. It's just so beautiful, that process of knowing that just like the waves of the ocean come and go, so do our emotions and feelings. It doesn't mean that we have to get rid of them. It doesn't mean that they're not meant to be there. They're meant to be felt. They're meant to be processed. They act as a guide as to what our needs are. What's important for me? What are my boundaries? That's how you will know based on your feelings. Yes, I do acknowledge that sometimes if we're stuck in that fight, flight, and freeze response, it can be much harder for us 
to recognize those boundaries, to recognize what our emotions are. And that's why we need support in this process. You're not meant to do this stuff on your own. All right, so I don't want to make these podcasts too long. I'm conscious of um, keeping them um, somewhat brief. Um, So I'm just going to leave it there for today, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. And thank you so much for supporting this work. I really appreciate it. Um, If you're interested in working with me, please visit mentalawakening.com.au. If you love this episode, if you enjoyed it, please subscribe and please leave a review or share it with others because this will help more people, you know, connect with this information, access this information here. So thank you so much for doing that. I will speak to you guys again in two weeks time with a brand new episode, with a brand new topic. Until then, take care, everybody. Bye for now.